This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I am joined by my friend Will, and we're discussing a movie he's never seen before, Aliens, from 1986. Will, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's fantastic to be here. Oh, man. So last time, dude, you watched Alien. That's right. Alien singular. The singular alien. And now... Here we are for the sequel. The multiple alien. We don't know how, I don't know how many, maybe you do, but I'm assuming it's going to be multiple, thus the well, pluralization. Are you, is that a prediction? That That's you a want prediction, down? yes. That there are actually going to be multiple aliens. All right. I'll put that down. Multiple aliens. Uh, any guess on how many? I'm going to say, I'm going to guesstimate there's going to be six. Six. Seven. Because you think there's six the whole movie, and then, like, right at the end, oh, there's one more. I see. Yeah. Yeah, classic horror movie stuff. You've got that last one, like a jump scare right at the end. Yes. Then your classic Jason Voorhees thing. So let's circle back for a moment, all the way back to, like, a month ago when you saw Alien. Yes. You liked that movie. I did. Very enjoyed it. Very enjoyed it. I very enjoyed Me too. the movie Alien. And having enjoyed it, are you looking forward to this one very much? I'm very much looking forward to it. So you're not worried that this is going to suffer from sequelitis? I am not, but I think that's partially because I'm familiar enough with how the public at large reacted to the various Alien movies and that Alien... The original Alien and the first sequel, Aliens, are generally considered uh, favorably and uh, have upstood the test of time. And the other sequels, maybe not as much. So I feel pretty confident going into this movie that I'm going to enjoy it. Mm, mm, okay. Do you think you've ever seen anything from this movie? Like, this one's on TV a lot. So do you think you've caught any scenes from it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that... The last time we spoke before I watched Alien, I was predicting things for the movie Alien because I had seen a few minutes here and there on television. But it turns out, well, my educated guess at this point was a lot of what I thought was Alien was actually Aliens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I actually have a pretty good, well, I have a developed hypothesis about 
what we're going to see today. Okay. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about that in one sec. I just want to ask a couple specifics before we get into it. Yes. Okay. So number one, do you know who directed this movie? I am 95% sure that it was the director, James Cameron. Okay. Ridley Scott directed the first one, and I remember right. I had predicted, I thought it was Ridley Scott, but it might be James Cameron. Mm-hmm. I think James, I thought that because James Cameron directed the sequel. Okay. Okay. Do you know who's in this one? Sigourney Weaver's in this movie. Hmm. Sigourney Weaver returns because, spoiler alert, she does survive. The first Alien film. And I am very comfortable with spoiling the shit out of the Alien movie and our Alien podcast. Because if you're listening to an Aliens podcast and you haven't even seen Alien... I mean, yeah, come on. Get it together. Get it together. Like, you're all over the place. What are you doing? Yeah. So... It's on you. Yeah. Also, just generally speaking, I'm not a huge uh, spoiler-averse... Uh, I'm not a spoiler Nazi. Like, I, I don't... I mean, I guess if there's a movie where the entire thing is tied to a final twist at the end, that is kind of annoying. But other right. than that, I don't... Even when I have those kinds of things spoiled for me, I tend to still enjoy the film pretty well anyway. Like, I just enjoy seeing the the craft of leading up to the twist, regardless of knowing what it's going to be. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, you know, first of all, if you don't want a movie spoiled for you, don't listen to anything or read anything having to do with it. Um, have you ever seen a movie that was spoiled for you before you saw it and you think that you didn't enjoy it or enjoyed it less uh, for that reason? No. See, I can't say that because I had the movie The Sixth, the sixth Sense spoiled for me before I saw that movie. And it was this huge phenomenon when he came out in like 99 or 2000, whenever that movie came out. And I remember kind of trying to avoid because I knew there was like a twist ending and I tried to avoid it. Yeah. And somehow I came across it just because it was so much in the culture. So I remember watching the movie and just being pissed off because (laughs) it's so obvious if someone told you and I'll never know if it would have been obvious for me. There was also... um, also, if you know the twist, it renders the rest of the movie kind of boring. Yeah, it's just a it's slightly engaging drama between a boy and his dead therapist, and you know his relationship with his mom. I guess. Yeah, but I, guess. I mean that's but M Night Shyamalan's an outlier where like all those movies are twist based, mm-hmm. you know. So I feel like we can't make a a broad judgment based on how M Night Shyamalan movies hold up. Right. Knowing the knowing spoilers with them. When you first saw the usual suspects, did you know that the um director and star were both kitty rapists? You know, I'd had that spoiled for me at a Hollywood party that I mm. attended in nineteen ninety seven. I'm sorry to hear that. I uh, hope you're okay. Yeah, along with my innocence. Yeah. In actual fact, the ending of The Usual Suspects was spoiled for me because I saw Scary Movie before I saw The Usual Suspects. <laughs> And someone was, I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool ending. And they're like, it's the usual suspects, idiot. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. Sorry. Some condescending twat. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's. <laughs> We're off. Circle. We're totally off. Yeah. That's fine, though. Um, so James Cameron directed this movie. Sigourney Weaver is in it. Anyone else you're expecting to see? Paul motherfucking Riser. Because I remember when we did the Alien podcast and I was so confident that I was going to see Mad About You. Yep. And uh, and it didn't happen. 
And I'm I 99% sure that that's because I had seen a clip from Aliens with a young Paul Reiser in some sort of control room being kind of a dick. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So those questions being asked just to get them out of the way. What is your uh, unifying field theory of the Aliens movies? All right. So uh, the Aliens movies as a whole, the or genre, whatever, or just, whatever or your hypothesis is. Well, I think so. We uh, leave Alien, yeah, um, with our hero Sigourney. And again, I haven't gone to like IMDb after like we watched Alien or anything like that. Any of the nerdy stuff I normally do because I didn't want to. I do all that too. Have any of Aliens ruined for me for this podcast? I wanted to be as fresh as possible. So you know, some of this stuff I may not be remembering right since it was like over a month ago that we watched Alien, but. When we leave our hero, uh, Sigourney Weaver, she's the only survivor. She's vanquished the alien and she's headed back to Earth. Yeah. Do you remember her character name? No. Okay. <laughs> um, I believe that aliens picks up. We're back at Earth. Yeah. The company she works for because the movie Alien, they were sent on a mission not by a government agency, but by a private company, if I remember correctly. Correct. And it's kind of arbitrary in the world of moviedom, whether the sort of big brother, um, the man uh, entity, which is kind of overseeing and meddling and everything is a, a private enterprise or the government. That's, I think, a, a little bit irrelevant both in real life and in uh, Director's movies. Director's choice. Yes. But there's going to be some sort of big brothery type, government type, uh, uh, monopoly, uh, huge world corporation that's going to be Looking into things, uh, not for the right reasons, not for humanitarian reasons, but is going to be interested in some kind of profit or power. And uh, Sigourney Weaver is going to be at odds with uh, this entity in some way, shape or form. Although, of course, because she's the only person who's encountered this alien life form uh, face to face, uh, she's obviously very important to whatever operation it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Reiser works for this evil government entity in some sort of like Igor, Igor, lackey type uh, role. And um, the aliens uh, somehow come to Earth. I believe they are brought to Earth by this corporation who has some sort of profit motive uh, to bring them and is ignoring the uh, very, uh, you know, heartfelt and correct uh, reservations of Sigourney Weaver and whoever else may be on our side. Mm. Um, they do bring the aliens to Earth. Um, the, they want to contain them in some sort of lab type situation. Um, and the aliens, of course, break loose and they definitely kill Paul Reiser in the second act. Hopefully. I hate that guy. <laughs> Not his character. I just hate Paul Reiser. Really? Paul no. Reiser? No. Did he do stand-up, like, in the 70s? Was he one of those comedy store guys, or was he, like, an actor first? I was... I I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, but when you have the image in your mind of the 80s stand-up comedy boom of a dude in front of a brick wall with a blazer with rolled-up sleeves... Yeah. I think Paul Reiser. I think, yeah, Paul Reiser, yeah. So, he must have, right? He must have been a stand-up. Absolutely. Yeah. He I th- was. I think so. He was well, of a course, stand- he was a stand-up. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we've settled. 
settled. Um, okay. Do you have any anything else you think is going to happen? I think we're going to see explosions. I think mm. Sigourney Weaver is going to save the day, but it's going to be kind of ambiguously ominous as far as, well, we're safe for now. Okay. So she saves the day, but does she save the whole day? Right. She, she saves the day, but not the year? Right. Yeah. Okay. Let me um let me get to a couple specific questions that I have. Um well, I guess specifically about the aliens. I want to see how well you remember uh, from Alien, what is the alien's full life cycle? Uh, the alien's full life cycle is it uh gestates, if that's the correct word, itself into a host. Um then breaks out of that host in a uh disgusting and gory manner mm. um and then uh continues to shed its uh, carapace and grow and become more uh unstoppable and evil along the way right on right on mm. do you remember any of its other qualities um it's ugly it sure is <laughs> it looks like a hr uh, geiger painting somewhat it does and um does it spit? I feel like it might spit something gross. I don't want to answer that one. Okay. Okay, okay. And then you already sort of mentioned that uh, you think this takes place mostly on Earth, but do you want to predict anything more about the setting of the film? I think that there, there, I do believe there are some scenes in outer space as well. Okay. So some scenes in outer space. So having made these predictions, and is that it? Do you have any more? Yahoo Sirius? I mean, 1986, Yahoo Sirius could have played some sort of role here, be it some kind of comic relief character. I'm sorry, who? Yahoo Sirius? Who the fuck is Yahoo Sirius? <laughs> Young Einstein. <laughs> what the? What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, let's go back to 1986 in our way back machine here. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the mid to late 80s and Australia for some reason is big in movies Crocodile Dundee I am uh, familiar and on the coattails of Paul Hogan and the Crocodile Dundee franchise to America comes a young comic actor named Yahoo Sirius is that a real name or is it a stage name uh, I've got to assume it's a stage name I mean well Australians tend to give their children bizarre names maybe I so I mean this is this was long before for the um, internet juggernaut Yahoo. Yeah. Uh, well, that's. I was like, this is way too soon for Yahoo. What are you talking about? I mean, I think it's ironic because Yahoo and then his last name is Sirius. But he yeah. made a few movies. And I think the most popular one was a movie called Young Einstein where he plays Young Einstein. And he learns to split the atom in order to make beer for with his dad so they can get drunk. Wow. <laughs> oh, okay. And so you think that this gentleman, <laughs> serious, in his role from Young Einstein or in an entirely new capacity? <laughs> it might be a new capacity, but I think like when they first see the alien do what the alien do does, I think that Yahoo Sirius might turn to the screen and go, crikey. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually glad you bring that up because I want to ask you, um, are there any quotes that you associate with this movie? Um... Now I want I want to throw out that previously for Alien One, you did predict the quote, "Look, it's an alien." 
<laughs> now, we didn't get that in that movie, but no. are you thinking maybe this time around? In addition, in addition to Crikey, um, I think it might be like, look, there's a whole bunch of fucking aliens. That would make sense. I think that might be one of them. Um, and I think the tagline to this movie is, on Earth, people can hear you scream. <laughs> but it often lands on willfully deaf ears mm. due to society's apathy and ignorance. I think that would was a nice, concise tagline that they may have put on the poster. Right on. Right on. Okay. So last thing before we begin, hype. You mentioned already, but clearly this movie has been super hyped for you. Sure. As, as the original Alien had as well, yeah. Which one do you think has more hype? Uh, I think the original Alien, because without that, there's no aliens. Mm. So, uh, I and I think that the original Alien, I mean, I saw it. I could uh, tell, of course, why it was a classic, why it is on so many lists of the great sci-fi or the great movies in general of all time. Mm. Um, I don't know if Aliens will live up. It just kind of like The Godfather 2 is a, a great movie in its own right, but it's a sequel. So, um I think it's going to be better than The Godfather 3. <laughs> there's a there's a tough bar to clear. You know, The Godfather 3 was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, but it, it, I feel like it has all the trappings of a Best Picture. It's like, you know, late in the year, you get those, you know, period pieces or those biopics that have that shiny gloss of prestige filmmaking. And yeah. even if they're not good, they still get the nomination. Yeah. That has to have been what was going on. It with has Godfather to have 3. been. And it's the same year as Goodfellas, which I also didn't realize. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. They were both nominated. Goodfellas and Godfather 3 in the same year. I think it was Driving Miss Daisy maybe won <laughs> that year. Uh, wow. What a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre year for... <laughs> Best just, picture nominees. I'm just trying to go on as many tangents as possible in this intro, so I think I've uh, maxed that out at this point. <laughs> well, it's odd you say that because Morgan Freeman's in this. In no. Aliens? No, he's not. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. I first met the alien when... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be okay. fantastic. Uh, so, um, okay, so you don't have any quotes... That you're expecting, except for Crikey, and there's a, and look, there's a whole bunch of aliens. This is coming in with a lot of hype. Uh, you liked Alien One. Do you expect that's you're gonna continue to like that one better after this? Which one you think is gonna be your favorite when all is said and done? I think Alien will be my favorite, just given the inherent nature of sequels. Right. Speaking of the inherent nature of sequels. You know, they have a tendency to expand on the world established by the first one. That's right. obvious. And I don't think I'm giving away anything by saying that that is what this movie is going to do. But what genre would you say Alien is? Sci-fi horror. Okay. Uh, yeah. Have you been given any reason to suspect that there is anything different about this movie? Well, you just did. Yeah, sorry, bro. Spoiler alert. But we did just talk about how you don't care about spoilers, so I don't feel bad. Right. This is a period piece biopic with a shiny gloss. Wow. Of uh, end of the year Oscar bait. It's it's really slow moving. Wow. You know, it's like an Agatha Christie. Sounds great. Yeah. No, I'm just you know I'm curious. Um, you know, I asked about quotes. Are there any like specific images that you think you're going to see? 
That's a good question. I think the images that I remember most are, are were, were, were covered in Alien. You know, there's the uh, alien popping out of the the guy's chest, and then there's the scene at the end where you see the alien face come like right up to Sigourney Weaver in the spacesuit, which was actually um, done uh, uh, kind of very self consciously homaged in in the movie A Quiet Place, which I just saw. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I, I, there's a scene where it's it's very much that shot. Um, but those uh, those two shots, I think we saw in Alien. So no, there's no particular shots or scenes that I'm expecting. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that case, I think we're good to go. You uh, looking forward to this? Because I sure am. I sure am, Dave. I always like watching this movie. It's one of my all-time faves. Yay. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Let's watch Alien. Zah! Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Are you ready? Yeah! yeah. Are you ready? Yeah! yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. 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 Get down the die! Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there. So that was aliens. Aliens multiple this time. Yes. Well, there were more than seven. I counted more than seven. I don't have an exact count, but yes, more than seven aliens. But there was one last one to deal with right at the end. Well. So you hit that one on the head. Brilliant. How could I have ever predicted that? (laughs) I know. It's almost as if you've seen a movie before. Anyway, uh, what'd you think, dude? It was, it was fine. Whoa! <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. Oh shit! It was an above average action movie. Yes. So, Alien is indeed a sci-fi horror movie. Yes. Aliens takes it in a more action direction. Yes. Which I think works. Uh, I have heard people criticize that choice, but uh, I I like this film for. It, it being different as i said it's good it's a good movie um alien i felt was like that was a hole in my cinematic viewing 
history. That is one of the great films. Oh, 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 oh. Let's not give away. Let's save that part for the end. Okay. Before we do that, though, let's talk about the background. All right. To Aliens. All right. All right. So this movie came out in 1986, which I don't know if you remember when Alien came out. 79, if I remember correctly. Right. Right. And so that is a long time a between long time. sequels, between films. And the reason for that is, I don't know if you remember from last time, but there was some financial shenanigans between Fox and Brandywine Productions who made the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. About uh, the gross for Alien, and so that slowed things down because there was a lot of conflict and a lawsuit. Lawsuit was settled in 83, and uh, they were able to pull things together and start working on the movie then. So that's why there's so much time. They decided to go with a new director, James Cameron, and they did this off the basis of reading the script he wrote for The Terminator. All right. The Terminator wasn't out yet. But uh, they thought the script was really strong, so they approached him while he was making Terminator. Interesting. Yeah, and so because he had this offer on hand, and because Terminator had a bunch of like production slowdowns and stops, he, one, wrote a lot of aliens while making the movie or during pauses in the making of it, and two, he treated Terminator as a kind of dry run for a lot of the things he would then do in Aliens. Have you seen Terminator? Of course, I've seen Terminator and Terminator 2, and yes. There's kind of a lot of aesthetic carryover from the one to the other. Uh-huh. I mean, also some cast and things like Michael Bean. Michael Bean. And, and so just so that I have the chronology right, so Aliens released theatrically in 1986. Yeah. Before or after... Uh, before or after Terminator? Right. After Terminator, because the deal that wound up happening was that um, even though they liked James Cameron, they weren't, he was still a relatively untested newcomer. Mm-hmm. So what they said was, we're going to wait and see how Terminator does, and if it's successful, we'll give you this film. Okay. And if it flops, we're going to look for someone else. And then Terminator came out and was a, a hit. Yeah. They were like, okay, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So, as we just kind of discussed a little bit, James Cameron chose not to follow quite the same formula as Alien, but to create a more of an action combat film mm-hmm, instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did say that uh, his idea was to focus more on terror and less on horror. And, you know, it sounds silly at first, but if you think about it, there is a subtle difference there. Yes. Right? Like, the terror of everyone in Aliens, it's like a a stress reaction to an imminent problem whereas horror is more the like the creeping dread of a horrifying atmosphere i don't know if i'm making any sense no i'm following that i think that's correct there's a difference between mere fear and you know just reacting to something that's threatening your life versus actual horror Mm -hmm. you know horror is something like uncanny you know something that truly hits you in the soul but anyhow, that was a pretentiousness corner for a second. James Cameron also said that he drew a lot of inspiration from the Vietnam War for this movie. Interesting. Yeah, what he said in particular was he he was thinking about a technologically superior force coming into a situation where they were very cocky and confident of success, mm-hmm. 
finding themselves faced with a technologically, or in this case, even like intellectually inferior opponent and still getting their ass kicked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you see that in the way the Marines are at the beginning and how they fare. Right. Yeah. Well, not to get ahead of ourselves to characters, but I definitely felt that in Bill Paxton's character. Oh, yeah. uh, Of Hudson, who kind of went from uh, early scenes Iceman uh, from from Top Gun to later scenes Big Lebowski. Um, <laughs> he has the widest shift from cocky to terrified yeah. of anyone in the movie, but we'll get to him. Don't yeah. worry. The only other thing I want to mention about the production was that um, so Cameron really wanted to get Sigourney Weaver back, but she had some doubts about the project. He met with her and convinced her to come up, come on board. But um, 20th Century Fox refused to sign Sigourney Weaver because they felt like she wanted too much money. Really? Yeah. How much money did she want? Do you have that in front of you? I do. James Cameron went to Fox and said he basically insisted that he's like, I I want Sigourney Weaver. And by the way, this is going to fit into uh, both this and the Alien movies more general misogyny theme mm-hmm. that we talked about in part one and continues into this one, mm-hmm. including the behind the scenes we have right here. So James Cameron, a man, insisted on getting Sigourney Weaver to so Fox agreed and they paid her $1 million. Which, and this is, of course, something like 30 some odd years ago now, but um, that doesn't seem like a lot by today's standards. And especially for someone who is the protagonist in a blockbuster film. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't as much as a male star would have made. At the same time, uh, I recently talked about Die Hard, and that was uh, a year or two years. I forget, ex- it was at 87. Same era, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Bruce Willis made $5 million for that. So you see the disparity there, and also he was much less established than mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver was by that point. But it, that was also considered kind of an outrageous amount of money to pay someone. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. 30, the number you just said, is interesting, though, because uh, that is the number of times more what she was paid for aliens than what she was paid for alien. <laughs> 30 times the salary. Wow. Yeah. So just a couple of other things. Um, other inspirations for aliens would include Starship Troopers, the novel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you read it? I've not read the novel, no. One of the things that that novel does is it introduces um, powered armor, like exoskeleton, into sci-fi. I think it's one of the first things to do that. Mm-hmm. And also some terms like uh, bug hunt. Uh, some of the design work. So we had H.R. Geiger last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, a lot of the design and concept art came from this guy, Sid Mead, who was also responsible for Blade Runner and Tron. However, uh, the alien queen herself was designed by James Cameron. Okay. Yeah. And this is kind of interesting, too, that I discovered. Apparently, and this is just kind of like a bit of trivia, all the scenes with the alien queen, those are all done with no post-production manipulation. Everything you see is just what they shot. Interesting. Yeah, okay. there's no there's no post-shoot touch-up on any of those scenes, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then um, uh, just one other bit of trivia that I think I mentioned to you, but I want to get out on air. There's a bunch of Joseph Conrad references. So mm-hmm. Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness, the inspiration for Apocalypse Now, he wrote a book called Nostromo, which was the name of the ship in the first movie. And in Nostromo, there is a town called Sulaco, 
which is the ship in this movie. Hmm. So I don't know who the Joseph Conrad fan is, but someone in the Alien universe really likes that guy. So a little bit about the production, too. This movie was filmed in England, and there were some production problems. To start with, the crew was very loyal to Ridley Scott, so they were kind of hostile to James Cameron. They were also hostile to his uh, then-wife and also co-producer on the movie, Gail Ann Hurd. And here we get whiffs of misogyny again. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, James Cameron complained that there were weird labor practices in England, including a tendency to take a lot of tea breaks. Well, it's England, of course. You need to do that. Get back to work. Oh, chip, chip, cheerio, old mate. <sighs> God damn Europeans. Um... Uh, the original DP on the movie, uh, the director of photography, he really wanted to make the alien nest brightly lit, and James Cameron wanted to keep it dark. Hmm. And it got so contentious that the DP got fired, and then the crew walked out in protest because they were so upset about it. So this happened, this must have been pretty late in the production, unless they shot completely out of sequence. They did shoot out of sequence. And we'll talk about that too, but in, 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 I don't think it matters like when in production it is. That's a big fucking deal if the whole crew leaves. Yeah, it is. Oh, and another thing about the alien nest, they found the perfect location to shoot for the alien nest, but then they couldn't shoot there for a while because they had to clear it of asbestos. Because hmm. it was rife with asbestos. So that's just some of the stuff that went on in the background of this film a lot of troubled productions we're dealing with on this podcast lately all right so we've been talking about him let's get into him james cameron the director of aliens james cameron the director of aliens what did you think of the directing in this movie so before i get into the directing i want to talk a little bit about james cameron the screenwriter oh please do because and correct me if i'm wrong but he's the only credited writer on this film is this cor is correct. that correct correct and i'm sure that's not actually the case these types of movies have a lot of collaboration and mm. you know the 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 eventual credit sometimes goes to only one person i think james cameron is a hacky as shit writer Ooh. i think his dialogue is terrible i think his characters are wooden mm. i think this has been true his entire career i think that he Certainly, I would, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't argue against his abilities to direct and produce a blockbuster film, but each movie that he insists on writing, and, and I feel like this, uh, for James Cameron, more strongly than anyone except for George Lucas, <laughs> just let someone else friggin' do the dialogue. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and I think it took me out of the movie quite a bit. Interesting. Just his dialogue and his character development, I find to be off-putting. Okay. Off-putting. Wow. Is there anything specific you want to point to? Well, and I'm sure we're going to go through the movie beat by beat, so yeah, we'll get to yeah. a lot of but it. But just like any like particular thing you want to toss out, just, just to, as an a, example? So this is a personal quirk of mine in that I always notice the exposition uh -huh. and it's important to me that the exposition either gets right out there or is actually well incorporated well incorporated yeah there was a scene early on this movie it's the first scene where we actually i believe see uh ridley ridley ripley ripley 
It's the first scene where I actually see Ripley and the dream sequence. The dream sequence. And this is where we're introduced to um, the character Burke. Burke. Paul Reiser. <laughs> Paul Reiser, who's in this friggin' movie. <laughs> yes, he is. Nailed it. And he's a corporate tool. And he's a corporate tool. So we're introduced to, you know, we see her. She She's, you know, in the pod, she comes out. Burke comes in and explains to her that she's been asleep for 57 years. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, a long time. A long time. And then she says, oh my goodness, she starts clutching her chest. We think, oh, is she having a heart attack? And no, we see the aliens start to kind of come through. And then smash cut to her waking up, and it was all a dream. But wait a minute. So they put exposition in a dream sequence? That renders it completely meaningless because it's something that she was making up in her head. Well, hang on. No. <laughs> That's a valid point. Well, I it would be a valid point if we're talking about some other movies that have done this where the exposition in a dream sequence is something that uh, the person having the dream otherwise wouldn't have known. Like at the, in Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne gets information that's critical in a dream sequence and there's no other source that it could have come from, right? right. So it's kind of bullshit. In this movie, though, I feel like this is actually a pretty effective way of doing exposition because we get the exposition scene and then we combine it with the nightmare, which, you know, the purpose of that is one, give us a scare, to remind us of what we're facing, the alien popping out of the chest, and three, to show us the uh, emotional damage that Ripley has suffered from the first movie, her PTSD. And we get all of the, all of those things from just this one scene. But, you know, her actual memories could be informing what she's dreaming about, right? So the dream just starts as, you know, it's her remembering this thing, but then it goes in this whole other direction and becomes a nightmare, right? I mean, I think that's a pretty charitable interpretation. So in that scenario, Paul Reiser and she have had the conversation where he tells her she's been asleep for 57 years. Then she goes to sleep. She replays that part. And then it goes off into that direction where she has the alien in her tummy. Yeah. Oh, fine. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good use of time. You get your exposition out. You get a dream sequence. You get a little, you get a scare. Just, Fine, just fine. You show her emotional state. It's doing a lot of things at once. Fine. All right, all right. We'll argue about it more, I'm sure. But um, I think that you are correct about James Cameron's uh, dialogue writing ability and his tendency to use kind of stock types. Yeah. And I do actually agree in other films I've had, like, say, Avatar, for instance, I've leveled some criticism at the way he handles exposition. I just don't think it's that bad in this movie and in fact i think this is the movie that he does the best job i actually really like the characters in this film i think they're very strong mm -hmm. and some of that could be the actors but i even think some of the dialogue is really strong I don't every know. line bill paxton says in this movie is fucking gold that is true that's true but well, first of all, you have to give some of that to Paxton. I mean, I, I'm sure you could give like 80% of it to Paxton. 90%? But sure. But there's also quotation marks around everything he says as well. You know, they kind of... It's it's not seamless to me. I can okay. see... I can see Jim Cameron at his typewriter, because it was a typewriter. 
I'm sure it was back <laughs> then. Yeah, eighty-five or whatever. I don't know. It's just, and and this is my bias as well because I think as soon as I saw screenplay by James Cameron, it's just you know I then I have that for the uh-huh. rest of it and it's on my mind and maybe right. I'm looking for that. So maybe it's maybe it's All unfair. Right. Maybe if you had not if you, if I had not seen that one point five seconds of, of screen of screen, maybe it would be different. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it more as we dive into the plot. But I just want to kick out a couple last things on James Cameron. One. Just to mention, this is his third feature-length film after Piranha 2, The Spawning. Oh, of course. Which I think the number of times I've mentioned that in passing, I now have to do an episode on. (laughs) And also, who doesn't want to see Piranha 2, The Spawning and The Terminator? So this is only his third film. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty good job for a a noob. And then, uh, this is the thing with the Alien movies, and I forget if I mentioned it in the first one, but of the four movies and the kind of prime alien run of films Mm -hmm. each one of them has a different director and each one of those regardless of the success either artistic or financial of any of these alien films each one has a director that is very talented and in some cases or all four cases really is an auteur with a distinct vision and style that they bring to these movies with a certain level of or lack of success, depending on which one you talk about. But each one is very unique, and I think that's a very interesting thing with this franchise, just how much each film is reflective of the different director that they brought in to make it, which is kind of unusual. I think that's right, and I think there's not a lot of franchises that have a comparable sort of thing no, that they do i would i would put the mission impossible movies, oh yeah that's um, a good point and, you know they go in either ways the one with john woo where they're ripping off masks and birds are flying every yeah. five seconds is a little and, and i i would even go um the bond franchise which has mm. of course maybe cinema's most longest running franchise yeah i think it is uh, um but it has had some incredible directors attached to it like throughout who? the years I don't remember. I see. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I I'm don't want to go into it because I'm going to miss out some really important names. Okay. But there have been some, yeah. yeah to a certain extent, uh, for a while, you could have said the Harry Potter movies too. But That's then they true, started yeah. keeping uh, David Yates on for all of them, starting with like um, five. Yeah. Anywho, enough about the directors. Let's talk about this cast because boy, is it a good one. It's a good cast, absolutely. This, this cast is such a prototype for the like action-slash-horror movie cast that you get going forward, especially any cast that features soldiers or Marines. True. And I also, I it's so interesting how there's such a good gender mix amongst the soldiers in this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. You don't even notice it. You know, in, the, in America, we have had and to some extent continue to have so much bitching and moaning about having women in the military or in combat positions. And yet in this movie, I mean, if you notice anything out of the ordinary at all, it's to notice how badass the female characters are specifically. Mm-hmm. That's true. So anyway, so the first person we should talk about in the cast, obviously, Sigourney Weaver, mm-hmm. Ellen Ripley. Mm-hmm. What would you think? I mean, great. She was great in the first one. There's no reason that she wouldn't be great um, in the second one and continue on that role. Um, it was interesting because, of course, you know, the timing of it in in the reality of the movie, it's been 57 years since we last, we've last seen her. Yeah. Um, but she's been asleep the whole time. Yeah. 
in r- reality, it was, what, eight years between the production of the two films? Yeah. Um, and I would assume that she continued to have a career in those eight years and probably was in several other projects. Well, Ghostbusters comes between, right? Oh, does it really? Okay. Yeah. So that's one. And, you know, it was a different coming into it because we talked about an alien. She was not known to be the protagonist in the beginning of the movie. And you didn't know really who was going to end up carrying the movie until, you know, everyone else died and she was left alone. Mm -hmm. Here there's an expectation, of course, that she's going to carry the movie. So it's a little different going in. But I think that gives her more to do a little bit because she's clearly the protagonist from the beginning of this movie. And they give her a little bit more uh, a little bit more of an interior life. Like for a lot of Alien, uh, she's kind of a cipher. You Mm -hmm. know, she could be anybody. She's just a regular. She's every man stand in until the end. But in this one, she's a lot more specific and has much more specific motivations and also slightly more interesting ones than just survive to the next morning right i mean she still has that but in this one you know she's got her ptsd from the first movie Mm -hmm. which i think is very well played and we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. more and then you've also got her maternal instinct Mm -hmm. with newt and you know both of the these factors her emotional scarring and her desire to protect this little girl feed into her movie-long evolution from terrified victim into cinema's greatest badass Mm -hmm. So I I just think it is an exemplary piece of acting in this film. Uh, I think that's very true. And as far as upping the stakes from the last one where she's trying to protect a cat the whole damn time. Oh, Jonesy. A human child, you know. A little more important. A little bit more important. We're going to get... I would say the hierarchy goes cat, human child, Mm -hmm. dog. Mm -hmm. If there's a dog in a movie, it has to live or I'm walking out. You're going to get letters. (laughs) angry cat lady yeah i know well if anyone listened i would but uh (laughs) yeah all right so um let's move on to michael bean as corporal Dwayne hicks Dwayne hicks great name uh for a character Uh, i like to think of him as corporal cool competence because that's the role he uh has in this movie amongst the gang he exudes it and he doesn't lose it and i was impressed by that now i was trying to remember i don't i'm not sure i'm too familiar with his filmography, his oeuvre, if you will. Yeah. Well, he's in a lot of James Cameron movies. He's in Terminator. He's right. Uh, what's his face? Um, Reese, Kyle Reese. All right. So yeah, he's Kyle Reese in Terminator, and it's funny, you know, in Terminator, he's this very cool, collected, calm, and competent soldier from the future mm-hmm. who takes a terrified female victim character under his wing and protects her for the whole movie until he gets hurt at the end and she finally has to step up and discover her own inner badass and Mm -hmm. save the day in this movie well he does that again yeah yeah same arc yeah but it's a good one and he does it well i don't know what else he's really been in specifically except i know he's in a ton of other james cameron films but like what the do you know him from anything else no i mean i i wouldn't be surprised if you were to tell me that he you know is the lead in one of those showtime type you know suburban person has to deal Mm. drugs to support the family or something like that so he's the male weeds (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, oh, he's in The Rock. He's a soldier in The Rock. Oh, and he's in Planet Terror. Okay. Yeah, all right. 
I think he's very good in this. I love Hicks. He's one of my favorite characters in anything. Yeah. I just, it's not just that he's cool and collected. He's clever, too. He's quippy. Yes. You know, it's an understated humor, but that's kind of what I like about it. Yeah. So, I don't know. I like him. Then we get Lance Henriksen. Yeah, Bishop, great character. Yeah. Um, Lance Henriksen, one of the great character actors. Love that guy. We gotta love that guy. James Cameron, regular. And I always felt kind of like um, Christopher Lloyd's more masculine brother. I see it. Yeah? Yeah. Also a little creepier. A little creepier. Well, no, I take that back. Both of them, I feel like, could do creepy very well. I mean... Uh, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. You know, so both can do creepy. But um, Lance Henriksen, I think, is a slightly more threatening creepy. Right. But yeah, he's super good in this. I love Bishop, too. I love all of these characters. I mean, this is why I'm pushing back so hard on your contention that they're not well-written or well-realized characters, because I feel like so many of these are such indelible ones in mm-hmm. my mind, you know? So um, speaking of memorable characters, let's talk about the guy you knew was in this movie. Mr. Paul Reiser, of As course. Burke, the corporate tool. The corporate tool till the end. Oh, he's such a piece of shit in this movie. He's absolutely a piece of shit. And we meet him, and the first thing I notice is he's got that 1980s popped collar. Oh, yeah. And that collar is staying popped because that symbolizes 1980s yuppie greed more than anything else. Sure does. Is that and you mentioned before we before we watched the movie about him in front of the brick wall in the mm-hmm. 1980s stand up routine with mm-hmm. the uh, with the sports coat with the sleeves rolled up, and you know that 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 look is just a certain kind of American psycho, Ronald Reagan, greed is good, and, and all the rest of it. And you'll notice, too, his outfit for the rest of the film when he's on the planet is such a, a Don Trump Jr.-like Ralph Lauren fucking a plaid shirt and orange vest fucking fake outdoorsman ensemble. Oh, my God, yes. It's hilarious because now I'm never going to be able to picture... Um, that character in that movie again without it being Donald Trump Jr. Well, also, how can you picture Donald Trump Jr. without thinking of corporate tool Burke from Aliens now? <laughs> I, You know, the picture of him sitting on the stump looking away, I just think of him being like, I'm going to fuck over those colonists. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie Hen as Newt. Ah, uh, Newt. Did they ever explain why her name was Rebecca, but she went by Newt? She just says that's what everybody called her. I imagine there's some kind of story behind it, but I didn't really need to hear it. Uh, yeah, I don't really care either. It's not a name for a girl, but, you know, whatever. Memorable, I guess. Sure. I, you know, I like her, and I like her performance. It's super memorable. Weird voice. Okay. Yeah. But I think that's also part of the charm of the character, so whatever. All right. <sighs> I cannot sing the praises of this next person enough. You know who I'm talking about. Bill Paxton. Mr. Paxton. Rest in peace. The late great. He died not too long ago. Yeah. He's uh, a relatively young man, 50-something, right? He was 61, still very young, uh, and it was uh, two years ago next month. Really sad. I I love Bill Paxton and everything I see him in, mm-hmm. but to a certain extent, I think this is his best work just because, as I said earlier, Literally every fucking thing that comes out of his mouth is, it, it's for the quote wall, you know? Yeah. And I 
tried to ask if you had any quotes and you didn't know them going in, but there's going to be a shitload that I wrote down as being super memorable quotes from this movie. Almost all of them from Hudson. Yeah. Like, he's so quotable in this film. Yeah, I've got a couple of his quotes down here, yeah. And he's such a strong character, too. You know, Bill Paxton, something about him, he plays that that swagger that's clearly bravado covering up for an internal cowardice and emptiness at first. Mm -hmm. You see through it even from the beginning, I think. Mm -hmm. And then his collapse partway through the film. It's so good. He falls apart so hilariously. Yeah. Oh, God. I I just, I I love him. I, I also want to toss out, this is a little bit of trivia. I think it's arguably my favorite piece of movie trivia. Bill Paxton in his career, has been killed by an alien, Mm -hmm. a predator, Mm -hmm. and a Terminator. (laughs) That's brilliant. It's awesome. This movie, Predator 2, Mm -hmm. and he's one of the toughs in the opening scene of Terminator. I need your clothes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's such a cool... I would rather that than an Oscar. Yeah. Honestly. It's so cool. So anyway, just a couple more to toss out there. Um, Jeanette Goldstein as Private Vasquez. Mm-hmm. I love this character. I do think it is incumbent on me to mention not a Latina actress. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, uh, she does a good job bringing it to life, but I think nowadays that would be a bit of a faux pas. Mm-hmm. And she has a, a terrific line in the beginning of this movie aimed at Hudson. Yes. Vasquez, you ever been mistaken for a man? Yeah, and then she goes back, have you, or something like that, right? I'm not quoting no, it verbatim. No, have you. No, have you, yeah. Yeah. Perfect comeback, and that's, you know, that's- It tells the, you so much about her. Tells you so much about her and so much about him. Yeah. Um, because he starts the movie, uh, Bill Paxton's character, as being, um, you know, that, that just sort of antagonist jerk that has to be there in every movie where you have a group of people trying to do the thing so they can have conflict within the uh, within the scene. The loudmouth. The loudmouth, yeah. yeah. Iceman, yeah. yeah. And um, the fact that his very first line where he reveals that that's who he is gets shut down just so um, markedly and, uh, you know, with so little effort by her. Oh, it's great. So this is what I'm saying about it being such an efficient, well-made film. All right, we'll get to it. Uh, the only other person I want to mention, and this, I guess, is the actress, but also the character. Um, well, one, there's Al Matthews as Sergeant Apone, who I think is really good as the like, no-nonsense sergeant. Mm-hmm. But Colette Hiller as Corporal Farrow, who's the dropship pilot. Right, yep. I think she's awesome. Very small role, but very memorable. She has a lot of kind of memorable quotes that I guess we'll mention when we get to them. And she just, there's a lot of little character things about that character that I really like. And I guess maybe we'll get to that more when we discuss the plot. So, I mean, without, unless you want to mention anyone else, uh, we should get into it. Great. All right. So, just uh, looking at your plot predictions, we've gone over a few of them, Mm -hmm. but just to hit some of the rest... Sorry, Will, Yahoo Sirius is not in this movie. No Yahoo Sirius. Crikey. No crikey. Yeah, sorry, dude. Uh, they also don't go back to Earth. No. Although- well, well, all right. They There's some scenes in the orbit of the Earth, but the aliens don't go back. The aliens do not go back to Earth. But um, they try. They try. 
And I think I was, if I can give myself credit, I think I was correct on the plot dynamic. Yes. I was off on the specific setting. Yeah. And I didn't realize that there'd be some sort of space station um, and, and not physical earth that they started it on. I think you got sort of the idea right, if not the exact specifics. So there, the company was playing that big brothery controlling role again. Yeah. And Sigourney Weaver was opposed to what they had going on when they're looking into it. And we also get, uh, what do you call it? An Igor style corporate lackey. Yeah. And they do want to bring the aliens back to earth and they plan to have them contained in a lab and all shit breaks loose and you know if they had brought them back they would have broken out so your idea was correct it just didn't unfold exactly that way oh and also uh, sigourney weaver did save the day but did she save the whole day <laughs> i guess we'll have to wait to for alien three to yes. find out for that one there were explosions uh there were some scenes in space and, um, well, there's one last thing, but we'll save that for the end. So, the movie opens, and we find Sigourney Weaver has been floating in space for 57 years. Long time. That's a long time. That would fucking suck. Could you imagine waking up 57 years later? There's a bunch of deleted scenes for this movie, and uh, I guess, to be clear, we watched the theatrical version of this film, not any of the special editions, and we didn't include any of the deleted scenes that sometimes get added. So some of the deleted scenes that uh, are most commonly put back into the movie. One, there's um, a scene at the colony where you see it uh, all clean and bright and active before it gets all uh, screwed over by the aliens and you get some of Newt's family. Hmm, okay. You see a few action scenes. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, and somewhat most importantly, I think, to the plot and most informative to it. There's a scene early on where Ripley gets home and she looks up her daughter and discovers that in the 57-year interim, her daughter has died. Ooh. And so I think that you don't need it for the movie and for her plot arc with Newt, but that knowledge is a little, it's informative. You know, it it, it kind of adds to the whole maternal instinct thing she has going on with her, right? Yeah, Absolutely. And it also feeds into the loneliness she must be experiencing, having ev literally everyone she knows gone and now living in this strange, shitty future. Yeah. Yeah. So she wakes up. She has that dream sequence where all that exposition gets efficiently put out. Burke reveals that he works for the company, which I guess is still as yet unnamed. Right. Kinda so weird. he refers to it just as the company, which I appreciated. We don't need a backstory. We just know it's the company. And yeah, the, I think there is some stuff later on in the movie about there's a relationship between the company and the government and the military. And, um, you know, uh, we don't really they don't really get into depth about the relationship. But, you know, maybe there is some sort of conflict there. Um, but it's all we need to know. The company, as I said, it doesn't really matter. So you, you wouldn't need any further information about the company whatsoever. I mean, I'd like to know who their CEO is and why he needs to shoot a car into space. <laughs> Indeed. So we get the corporate tool tribunal where uh, continuing on this misogynistic theme Ripley had to put up with in the first movie. Once again, no one listens to Ripley. She right? tries to explain it to them. 
She tries to tell him about the danger, but all they care about is their precious money. The fucking bean counters at the company. They're like laying it on her that she blew up the ship. Yeah, a little on the nose, Cameron, that scene. You know, a funny thing about this uh, Inquisition scene, too, is that they never mention that the planet is colonized now until she asks about it. Right. So she's like trying to explain this situation and being like, this stuff is happening. And no one thinks to say, well, you know, there are actually people there and they haven't found anything yet. They just sort of leave that out. Right. Until she brings it up. What the fuck? That's a little weird. And then we see, you know, like I said, it's a lonely future for her. She doesn't really have that many skills for this new future. She has no friends. She's living in a shitty apartment with that demon cat. With the demon cat and she's taken up smoking. Wouldn't you? Well, I, Of course I would. Um, it's actually good that she's smoking. We'll get to that. All right. She's also, I mean, she's got PTSD. She's having nightmares all the time. She's twitchy and, yeah. you know, anxious mm-hmm. and irritable. It's all, you know. She's really suffering from what she went through in that first film. But at the same time, when that company tool, Burke, comes back and is like, actually, you might have been right. Will you come with us to see what's going on? I wouldn't have gone. No. Or if I did, like, he's like, I'll get you, we'll get you your job back. I'm like, motherfucker, you give me $10 million. Right? Like, I'm not, you... You sent me out there, and then when I get back, you treated me like that, and now you want me to come back? I would have been, I would have been so angry. And also, she knows how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe she felt like she had to confront it for her own sanity, but at the same time, I would have, I would have asked for more money. Yeah, but you know, then again, uh, and we talked about this whole uh, cockiness problem that the Marines have. Burke does guarantee her safety. Mm-hmm. But, they guarantee her safety. Yeah, uh, they guarantee her safety, and they tell her that they are only going to destroy the aliens, and they have no ulterior motive. That's right. They also mentioned too. Burke says that he's been reading her psych evaluations. Excuse me. Is that legal? I don't. Well, maybe in this future. It's certainly unethical. Yeah, she's like, I know my psych profile. He's like, Yeah, I've read them. What? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. But anyway, so they tell her that it's nothing they can't handle. So she's like, fine, I'll go. And then we wind up on the Sulaco on the way and we meet our crew. Oh, my God. I love these guys. They're so cool. Every character is so memorable. Hicks, Hudson, Apone, Vasquez. They're all so fucking cool. They're all right. (sighs) (laughs) No, they're good. Oh, yeah, they're good. Each one is different, but, you know, they're all, like, believable as Marines. Uh, I, I don't know. I just, they're, they're such a classic crew. They are a classic crew. Absolutely. That's that's correct. So the deal with this these early scenes on the Sulaco as they're on their way, too, you were asking about the order that they uh, produced the movie in. Uh, James Cameron shot these scenes last so that... In effect, everyone who is involved with the movie will have gone through the stress and struggle of making the movie together. And so by the time they come back around to this scene, they will have grown in camaraderie so that it would be more natural Mm. when they do these scenes of them kind of like waking up and ragging each other. Like, you know, it's a clever idea. Yeah. Yeah. And we introduce Bishop by having him do the knife trick. Yeah. Did you recognize this scene at all? The knife trick? 
the knife trick they they played around with that in the first one, right? Or am I remembering something else? Uh, I don't think they do it in the first one. No, it's just in this one where he's like sticking knife. But they do that sometimes. I think in parody. Yeah. Know? Well. Okay. So so I guess that's my question. Is this? I mean, certainly I've seen in a number of different movies, TV shows, whatever, someone do that knife trick in between the fingers. I mean, was this the first time they ever had that scene? So that's so every time I see that consciously or not, it's a reference to to that scene. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this is where we also learn that Bishop is a robot and that Ripley does not care for them anymore. Ripley does not care for robots. Wonder why. Yeah. I don't know. I guess one of the robots on her last mission malfunctioned or something. Something like that. So I like how they got it out there right away and that, you know, he just kind of nicks himself and, you know, he bleeds cum, which means he's a robot. And um, (laughs) they just kind of say, no, but I'm one of the new robots now. I'm totally not evil. And uh, Ripley's very rude to him. She's rude to him, and she's understandably is, you know, incredulous about, you know, the newfangled robots, but they've had 57 years to come up with, you know, robots that don't turn out to be dysfunctional and evil, so. Yeah, but at the same time, Bishop is played by Lance Henriksen, and as we just mentioned, he's a very creepy dude. Right. Why in this universe do they always make robots look like middle-aged character actors? That's strange. All the hot young looking robots are back on earth acting as sex slaves i guess that's true <laughs> there is an extent to which you you can't be sure as much as ripley you can't really be sure what bishop's true deal is until the end he's right. a little suspicious throughout the film yeah uh, until the very end when he turns out to be the best uh, i do like to how when he mentions the safeguards inside him they're the three laws of robotics oh i didn't catch that I mean, yeah, he he says, uh, uh, my inhibitor, I cannot harm a, I cannot actively harm a human, nor through inaction allow one to come to harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are two of the laws of robotics anyway. We get the briefing, and I think this is our first use of the term xenomorph. The xenomorph. Mm -hmm. But again, these Marines' response to that briefing, they're so fucking cocky. There's a certain extent to which their cockiness is annoying, and you kind of want to see them taken down a peg. Yeah, I got that. Yeah. yeah. I, there's a certain schadenfreude watching them get their asses whooped in that first first battle scene. But uh, anywho, they get on the dropship, and they head down. Uh, did you notice, too, or find it strange that they leave nobody behind on the ship? That was a bit strange. Well, I, like, Odd really? choice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I guess that they have the ability to remotely do whatever they need, but I mean, ultimately they couldn't, and that became a problem. And yeah. like, there's there's no pilot or chef or a, a medic. Like, there's just not one dude. Yeah, that they left behind to sweep the floors. <laughs> like, what? I don't know. They get on the dropship and they start going down. And um, here's one of the more well-known quotes from this movie: uh, "As the dropship is going." Down to the planet there. Yep. In the pipe. Five by five. You've never heard that before. No, not until not until now. Alright. And okay, so this dropship pilot, who I've mentioned I like, and we'll, this is a little bit towards the legacy of this movie end, but um have you ever heard of the game StarCraft? Sure. It's an awesome game. StarCraft has a lot that's kind of taken from this movie, and I'll talk more about that, but one thing in particular that's taken from this movie is there is a dropship 
not character, but like you can build dropships, right? And the char- and the character of the dropship is based on this chick. And mm-hmm. so among the pre-programmed responses that the dropship gives you is that she's in the pipe five by five. Okay. And the ship looks like this dropship. And she also mentions, as does this pilot, that uh, hang on, we're in for some chop. Mm. I don't know. So just thought I'd mention it. I'm a big StarCraft aficionado. So it's always something that stands out to me during this movie. So they arrive at the colony. And not, now- not before, I, I should add quickly, because we're talking about hudson's lines and one of my favorites is him saying express elevator to hell going down oh if only he knew if only he knew oh truer than he realizes uh yeah so they arrive and now the movie really starts they they start checking out the colony and this place is all donked up it's clearly been attacked by something yep and did you find it at all tense during these early exploration scenes? I gotta say, I don't think I did. And maybe it's because, well, I think there's a lot of different reasons for it. I remember when they, in the original, in, in the first Alien, when they get down, I thought that it was executed so well. And that some of the, you know, visual language that was being expressed was being done so through, you know, the kind of uh visors that they were wearing the looking mm-hmm. the whatever the and i mean in this case it was just and i think it was more also maybe that i just you know you inherently knew what you were going to expect and where it was going right so uh, no i guess i didn't find it as tense as maybe i would have if i had seen it in the theater originally or something like that hmm. Well, that's fair. Um, I, I will say I think these early scenes before it turns into a purely action movie, uh, there is a fair amount of tension for me. One of the reasons, uh, too, I think, is that they ha- they introduced this pretty clever conceit that continues throughout the rest of the movie, which is this motion tracker. Mm-hmm. And I know we sort of had one in the first movie, and it's used to much the same effect, but it's even better in this one, I think, because one... It's scary when the aliens all show up and the like alarm part of it is going off and you're, they're all like, where are they? I don't know. And the alarm keeps going and like that's scary. But even without that, it has this constant like kind of like tick, tick, tick sound mm-hmm. that just in the background kind of keeps you on edge. Another interesting thing about this place, no bodies. Where are all the bodies? Where are the bodies? Yeah. Ripley. So I was mentioning how good of a performance i think she gives in this movie this scene is a really good example of that where this is her early on where she's still terrified and she plays that tension well where as they're you know watching over the monitors from the soldiers uh, cameras and then once they're actually in the building she has this look on her face where it's it's superficially blank but you can tell there's all that roiling emotion behind her. It's it's she's giving the exact look of someone who's barely holding their shit together. Yeah, you know it's almost like too controlled. Yeah, she she does a very good job there. And there's even a tiny scene that tells you so much about everybody. So it's when they find the med bay where the uh, face huggers are being held as specimens, mm-hmm. and what you get is it's Ripley, Hicks, and Gorman. Ripley notices the face huggers. Mm-hmm. She gets Hicks's attention, and Hicks responds to her, which just throughout the whole movie, he's one of the few people who's taking her seriously pretty consistently throughout the film, which speaks well of him. 
he calls out to Gorman, and Gorman's not paying attention, so he has to call out to him a second time, because Gorman is clearly a bad leader, and we'll talk more about his bad leadership in a minute. Yeah. But um, Ripley is looking at these things, and Hicks comes up behind her, and he touches her, and she gives this little jump, like just a very tiny jerk, mm-hmm. and but you know she doesn't yelp or it's it's just a very small moment but it's so telling of her mental space you know i just i it's a tiny moment that i really like just because it tells you so much about all the characters in that brief you know few seconds mm-hmm. so anywho the facehuggers are there and of course robot robot uh, bishop is immediately smitten yeah all these goddamn robots and their fascination with these animals. I don't know. It's it's strange. It is strange. I wonder if there's some reason why artificial life forms in this universe are so enamored of this species. Will they address it in future movies? I don't know. Hmm. If they did, it'll probably be stupid. But anyway, <laughs> here's where we meet Newt. Here's where we meet Newt. What'd you think of? Uh, what'd you think of her? It's pretty badass that she survived all on her own that whole time. Absolutely. And you see she's kind of made this little nest for herself with some uh, what looks like Pringles or something similar and, and some discarded, you know, laundry items to sleep in. And she's just kind of there hiding out. Her family's dead and uh, she clearly has no illusions about anything. Well, she's she you know, we talk about uh, so many archetypes in these alien movies. She's definitely... Uh, prototypical creepy little girl uh-huh. you know she's got some early lines where it's like they're dead okay can i go now <laughs> and everybody's like it's okay we've got soldiers here it's not gonna make any difference yeah that was pretty great right there yeah, pretty children of the corn yeah or when she's trying um when ripley's trying to get her to go to sleep and is saying something about you know i bet your little dolly here can dream and she says she can't dream. She's just a piece of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Newt. Uh, this is a little later in the movie, but she has a, a rather famous line later on in the film where she's like, uh, she says that they should get to safety somewhere. She's like, they mostly come out at night. Mostly. <laughs> Yeah. Have you heard that anywhere? The mostly? Yeah, I think so. I quote that one a lot. I know South Park spends an episode doing that quote. Mostly. Is <laughs> is a really amusing line reading, but memorable. Um, also, Gorman just continuing with this incompetent lieutenant that they're saddled with. His bedside manner with her sucks. Absolutely sucks. And I think this is kind of gets to part of what stuck out to me as... What I don't like about James Cameron's writing is he has this um, propensity for making characters who are supposed to be sort of part of a villainous bureaucracy or something like that just so... It's too heavy-handed. They're just so obtuse. Yeah. When he walks away, he says the line, come on, we're wasting our time. Oh, we're wasting our time talking to the one survivor on this fucking planet that we've met so far and trying to figure out what the hell's going on. That's a waste of time for you. It's just no human being would that be that obtuse. Well, not only that, but like 
you know, this is the future where you would think that medical and psychological science has advanced a little bit. And yet his response to a clearly traumatized little girl is to be like, hey, 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 <laughs> wake up. You with me? Come on. Tell me about what happened. Where are the aliens? Where are your parents? Come on. You here? And I'm like, God damn. Just relax. Right. Soft touch, dude. Soft touch. Soft touch. Good cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I throw her up against the wall like Stabler's. <laughs> <laughs> you need you need a uh, Benson, not Stabler. Um, but like, I don't know. I mean, Gorman is painted as incompetent from the very beginning, right up until uh, his redemption at the end. But um, th- that that might be a moment where maybe it goes a little too far. Moving on, we get our first contact with the aliens, where. All of the uh, all the bodies are found. All those colonists are clustered in this kind of nest, if you will. Yeah. Let's go check it out. So all the Marines go charging off to check out this uh, weird, infested location. This is uh, this is a moment where I think Gorman's bad leadership really, really stands out because we've had hints at it all the way through, like the fact that he's a noob. You know, he's like. Oh, this is you know this is only my second actual field right uh, assignment or draw airdrop you know, but in in this moment we find out that they're in a giant nuclear reactor and no one's thought about it until Ripley points it out. Mm-hmm. She's like, you can't shoot your guns in there, right? And so Gorman, realizing his terrible mistake, orders them to disarm themselves. He's like, take all the magazines out of your guns and. Okay, this has come up in discussions of other movies before where I've been critical of the leadership abilities of military characters. Occasionally, I get pushback from people being like, well, you've never been in the military. You don't know what constitutes good military leadership. Mm -hmm. And yeah, fine. Point well taken. That being said, I am a human being, and I do have a kind of vague general sense of how people respond to certain situations and certain instructions and i have a certain amount of empathy you know i i can make judgment calls that i think give me at least an impression of what might be good leadership or bad leadership whether Mm -hmm. it be military or otherwise gorman orders them to take their ammo out and he doesn't tell them why and i think that was an example of bad leadership because they are all confused they're all now you know, respecting him less, I imagine, because he's giving them a nonsensical order. Right. Some of them actually go against that order and rearm themselves mm-hmm. and wind up using their weapons and they damage the nuclear reactor and it puts them in exactly the situation they're trying to avoid. And two, explaining it to them would have cost him nothing. It doesn't, it would have helped. You know, it wouldn't have undermined his credibility. He could have been like, if you fire in there, it's going to damage a basically a big nuclear bomb you're standing on. But because he doesn't, he chooses not to do that, A, they basically respect him less because he's telling them to do something that's nonsensical, and B, uh, it backfires because they just do it anyway. Absolutely. Well, that's, I think, an example of having a um, problem with the machinations of the plot and uh, addressing that problem by just simply making the character kind of shitty, which is a thing James Cameron does a lot. He does He does do that, especially with military characters and people in positions of authority. I do agree. But this, again, is only his third film. So 
maybe he's continued to do that because of the raging success of this movie. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep the Cameron offensive on. Fair enough. Fair enough. I will also point out, too, that while that was a bad decision of his, it was, in fact, an even worse decision because given that information, what he really should have done was pulled everyone out, regrouped, taken stock of everything and like reevaluated and then gone back in with a new plan. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have been like, everybody come out, we'll rearm ourselves with non-nuke setting off weapons, and then we'll go back in a little wiser this time. But nope, they just keep going. So they find someone who chest bursts. Yeah. That's fun. I like, too, how during all of these early scenes, no one respected Ripley in the beginning because no one listens to Ripley. But then they just keep finding more and more evidence of exactly what she was talking about. Right. Like the colony is destroyed. Everyone is gone. There appears to have been a big battle. Apparently something that bleeds acid was in this place because there's acid melt everywhere. Oh, we found a face hugger, just like you described. And Uh now- we get someone with a, an alien baby popping out of their chest. And so they burn it. And in my mind, it's always, well, now you've done it. <laughs> because the screaming baby alien wakes up the nest. Right. And holy shit, what an awesome early battle. Did you like this early early fight scene? Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's just so... I, I think this is a flawless piece of action filmmaking, especially in the buildup before the, like, with just the nest awakening, you get that, like, hissing sound yeah. of the aliens, uh, you know, making, communicating with themselves. And then, again, the, the motion sensor, it's been in the background this whole time, and now it's picking up motion. Where? Everywhere. <laughs> and also, there's another piece of technology that's really well deployed in this which is um they have those uh, heart monitors on the thing right and all the when once they actually start getting attacked all those flat lines starting to go yeah i sometimes question like you see why you would want that information as a leader but i can also imagine not wanting it because watching them all go flat like that is such a morale killer <laughs> i mean we see it right gorman totally loses his shit as yeah. everyone as a squad gets taken apart so they start getting killed by all these aliens right and Gorman collapses, and this is where Ripley's true evolution begins. This is where we get Ripley begins, mm-hmm. appropriately appropriately enough, because she starts driving a Batmobile. And um, did you notice the music in this scene? No, it's not coming back to me now. Okay, so um, when I did the episode about Avatar, I tossed out that I really felt like the score of that movie reminded me of Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Uh-huh. They had a similar score. Come to find out, that is because both of those scores were done by James Horner. Mm. Same guy. Mm -hmm. And um, James Horner also did this soundtrack, and it's even more similar to Wrath of Khan. Uh, This scene in particular where Ripley's driving her uh, Colonial Marines Batmobile to rescue everyone is essentially the exact score from the battle scenes of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And it's just, it stands out so much how similar they are. Um... Anything you want to throw out about this battle scene? There's so much that happens that's awesome in it. Yeah, I mean, it was an awesome battle scene. I don't know if there's specifics I want to that you haven't um, pointed out already. Well, everyone, I mean, by the end of it, everyone's like status has been completely upended, right? So yeah. like, most everybody's dead. Gorman is knocked out and isn't a leader anymore anyway. Mm-hmm. Hudson has revealed himself to be a total coward. <laughs> 
Vasquez is still a badass, but maybe a little bit more cowed. Yeah. And Ripley's basically in charge. Ripley's in charge from that moment on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Hicks is nominally in charge, but he's clearly taking her way more seriously. Yeah. And rightly so, right? I mean, it's. I think it's so cool how she rescues everyone despite her fear. Like, you know, this is the moment where her evolution from broken survivor to total badass truly begins mm-hmm. you know where she decides to drive this thing this this cool ass batmobile car through the fucking wall and rescue everybody uh, and oh god some of those some of those acid wounds are so gnarly yeah this scene this movie that does very good work showing just how effective that acid blood is as a defense mechanism because it really it messes those marines up yeah <laughs> We also get our our true colors from Burke. Yeah. They want to blow up the place, and he doesn't want to because it's an expensive piece of equipment. Right. Right, where he becomes almost, and this is partly Cameron being heavy-handed and partly, I think, doing something very clever, uh, which is, you know, a corporation personified would be a psychopath. Hmm. And uh, the fact that he cares more in that point about, you know, profits than the lives of everyone. Yeah. And it's even worse than we know, as we'll find out. Yes. But, you know, the funny thing is, too, is that up until this point, Burke's been pretty likable. Eh. Well, I mean, you know, up until this point, we've talked about how no one listens to Ripley. He is the only person who is listening to Ripley even a little bit. Well, that's a good point. He's yeah. the only one who takes her seriously. And I mean, we'll find out why later. But like, you know, and when she decides to go rescue everybody, he supports her decision. You know, Gorman's like trying to stop her. And he's like, no, you've had your chance, Gorman, you know. But do you ever believe him? No. No, I no. He is a slimy, yes. yuppie corporate stooge from the first moment, and you never believe when he's agreeing with Ripley that he has everyone's best interest in heart. You always believe that he has this ulterior motive. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Just, I mean, I guess this is just the, where the reveal happened. You know, yeah. this is the turn where we actually are sure of it. <laughs> and uh, I like Ripley's response to him, which is, "They can bill me." <laughs> Like, who the fuck cares about this building anymore? Right. They call in the dropship. And this is the other thing that I like about this pilot character, which is um, she goes down brave. Like, the the dropship is coming in and she hears the door open behind her and turns around expecting her co-pilot. But it's instead an alien. And keep in mind, she is ne- this is her first time seeing one of these. And yes, she's scared, but she maintains the wherewithal to immediately go for her gun Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work and she's killed but i just i really respect her courage in that moment i don't know i just it's a tiny character barely relevant to the plot but i always kind of like that moment yeah that's a good moment for sure yeah nonetheless (laughs) the ship crashes and we get is this the most famous line from this movie it's a hudson line do you know the one i'm gonna in a reference um no hit me with it game over man game <laughs> over so again much like the the knife uh hand scene i didn't realize that i just thought that was something that people said you know um and i'm sure you know the 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 phrase game over was said before then right i mean yeah but this i mean one it's the game over man game over uh-huh and it's the particular inflections yes too. yeah 
that Bill Paxney way of saying it. So I forget if we talked about this in part one, but um, when Alien 3 came out, a video game came out as a, a tie-in. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good video game. And um, every time you died in the video game, game over, man, game over. That's awesome. It was so fucking awesome. <laughs> um, and this is also when we get our mostly. <laughs> All right, so we start trying to lock down the place so that they can live to escape. Right. Even though we're not going to last 17 hours. Oh, man, Hudson is really falling apart. He's falling apart. But they uh, they start fortifying the place, and we also get a bunch of scenes of Ripley acting momish with Newt. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this section? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, you know, you like seeing those two characters, Ripley and Newt, um, establish that bond. You know, knowing the backstory of having the dead daughter, who did they ever in the movie Alien reference that she had a daughter? I don't remember that. No, they don't. So that's something that was completely kind of added for this movie and then subsequently, you know, taken away in the theatrical release. But as you said, I don't think you needed it. And it kind of would be a little over the top, I think, maybe if they had made a big deal out of it. I agree. Yeah, I I think it actually works better without the dead daughter. Because otherwise, as I guess we've maybe mentioned is Cameron's want and worse going forward, too heavy handed. Yeah. Otherwise, um, her relationship with her is clear even without hitting us over the head with it as having a dead daughter would do. But, you know, the scenes between them are very sweet and I do like them. And this is also, too, where we get uh, one of the critical observations from the characters in this movie. I asked you, uh, before we started watching, what is the full life cycle of this creature? Yeah. And you got most of it. You know, you mentioned the facehugger and the parasite and the baby alien and the full-grown alien. But I guess what didn't occur to you, nor did it occur to anyone until Ripley started thinking about it right here. What's laying those eggs? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky lucky James Cameron that he got to actually have his vision of what that might be be on him, right? That was lucky for James Cameron, and it was also the point in the movie where it occurred to me that my guess of six or seven <laughs> was maybe a little off. Well, I mean, it was already off at that point. It was already and- off at that point, but the sheer extent of how much it was off. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. We also, uh, we get more Burke sliminess where he says he wants those specimens to bring back to Earth. What a piece of shit. I know. But you know, I guarantee you that's real. Like, if we were in a situation like that, there are people alive now. Who, like, Burke is not a fake character. There are Burks running around. Absolutely. In the world right now. Someone would try to bring those things back. Anywho. Bishop volunteers to go bring the dropship down. And this is maybe where Ripley's opinion of him starts to change a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. because, you know, he volunteers to put himself in danger. There's also kind of a cool little moment, and I, I don't want to keep pointing out these, you know, tiny scenes and describing them, but it's I think it's funny and, you know, character showing that um, when they're putting him in the pipe where he's going to have to crawl through miles of shit. <laughs> All right. What, where they putting him in the pipe to go to the uplink to get the ship. He gets in. Vasquez hands him a gun 
and then turns to get the top of the pipe to put back on. And while she turns away, Bishop hands the gun over to Ripley, who puts it down. Oh, okay. I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's just this tiny little thing where, like, it's this pass the gun moment where it goes Vasquez to Bishop to Ripley to down. And it just, it tells you so much about all three characters again in this little moment. Like, Vasquez is like, gun, you need gun, take gun. Bishop's like, that's not what I'm about. I don't need this gun nor want it. Ripley is like, I understand you, Bishop, and I will accept this and put it away without saying anything. Uh-huh. And then they move on. It's just a nice little moment and funny. And then, of course, throughout all of this, we get our scenes of Hicks and Ripley flirting. Did you notice any of that? Oh, sure. What'd you think? It was fine. Yeah. You know, you didn't think, you, so this continues with your James Cameron can't write dialogue stuff? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't know if it was completely necessary. I do appreciate that they didn't have some sort of kiss scene at the end or something yes. like that. It wasn't like overtly part of what was going on. So it was maybe sprinkled in there um, a little subtly, which I which I liked. But it was just there. I don't know if it really did much for me one way or the other. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I'm glad that it's subtle. And that they don't have some big romantic moment. Mm-hmm. The whole thing, I like that it, it's basically just kind of simmering under everything. Mm-hmm. And th- this is where I kind of think James Cameron does a good job in this movie because you notice it and yet it's very low key. You know, it's just in the background. Yeah. Um, it's it's feeding their acting choices without being super out in the open and distracting you from the overarching plot. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think it's good. And also, I like the way it kind of comes out because it's, never coming out in these romantic gestures really it's more in like very practical things that they agree on so the 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 key moment between them i think is um ripley's like if they get me you know what i want you to do right and hicks says if it comes to it i'll do us both and like my heart fluttered i was just like ooh la la (laughs) they get each other it's just so romantic anyway just thought I'd mention it. Finally, Burke shows just what a huge piece of walking shit that he is, and he tries to fuck over Ripley and Newt and get that facehugger attack. Yeah. I mentioned earlier it's good that Ripley started smoking. The reason it's good mm-hmm. is because they're trapped in there, and Burke has turned off the cameras, but quick thinking Ripley, thank God she's got a lighter. Yeah. Because she turns on the sprinklers and calls everyone there with the fire alarm. Ah. Oh, my God. So the fact that she's a smoker earlier on, because she took up smoking between the two films, she was the only character, I believe, in Alien who you never see smoking. She doesn't smoke in Alien? Are you sure? I think that's true. I think we talked about that last time, because I had predicted that she smoked, because that was my my, uh, understanding of the film. And then pretty much every other character smokes, so then in this movie... She's taken up smoking, which is just a convenient way for her to have that lighter at that pivotal scene, which I didn't pick up on. Mm, Yeah. Well, it just goes to show, kids, smoking will save your life. So, Berg's a fucking asshole, and that plan of his is truly horrible. And we find out, too, that he's responsible for all of this, really, because he sent the colonists to go check out the alien ship. Yeah. Man, I, I never cottoned to that in the first, like, dozen times I watched this movie. It was only recently that I realized that the whole movie is his fault. Yeah. What a dick. Yeah. What a dick. Uh, and, you know, Sigourney Weaver has a good point in this scene where she talks about how 
I don't know which species is worse because you don't th- see them fucking each other over for a percentage. Absolutely. Great line. Good point, too. And a great point. Yeah. So their uh, execution of Burke, no offense, mm-hmm. is interrupted by the final alien attack in their last stand. What do you think of this action scene? It was. Fan- I would have liked to revel a bit more in Burke's death scene. Yeah, he deserved to suffer more. Yeah. He kind of, you know, he dies, but he dies the same way as everyone whose death he caused. Yeah. And you kind of want him to pay a little harder, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You kind of don't want that just fade away. You want to see some blood happen or something. Yeah. You know. Maybe get a scream or two in there. A scream or two. (laughs) Especially because he, like, locks them in when he runs away. What a... Oh, my God. There's just no end to this dude's, like, dirty tricks. I know. Terrible. Yeah. But, um, did you feel like... In the scene, you started to maybe wonder just how intelligent the xenomorphs are. You know, that was actually an issue for me in this movie generally. Not necessarily only intelligence, although that's part of it. But in Alien... It's there, just an animal. There's, there, It's just an animal, but a highly um, evolved animal, one of whom... Yeah. They spend the entire time trying to uh, defeat and actually takes out everyone but one person. And now we have countless of the same animal. There is a risk in sort of devaluing yeah. the fear factor of them by populating your film with so many. And I mean, so many of them get killed, right? Right. Yeah. But um, anyway, go on. I think I made my point. Oh, okay. Well... I mean, also, though, uh, you know, in the first one, it's so clearly an animal, whereas in this one, so they cut the power, right? And Hudson says, he's like, what do you mean they cut the power? They're fucking animals, Mm -hmm. you know, and they find this way in that all the humans had missed. Right. And there's a couple other times then later in the movie, too, where they just they behave a little more intelligently than mere creatures of instinct. Long story short, though, it's a pretty good last stand. Hudson goes out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. I mean, Hudson has a few good moments, even though he's sort of embarrassed himself. He does save Newt during the facehugger attack. And he does, before he dies in this scene, he kind of re, he, I mean, he refines his courage, although to a certain extent, it's just him kind of losing it in the heat of battle, Mm -hmm. where he's just like blasting away and killing so many of them before they finally get him. But, um... They get into these tunnels, and um, I, I've mentioned already, I like Vasquez a lot. She is the only character who fights one of these things essentially hand-to-hand. Yeah, badass scene. Super badass. I mean, anyone else in this movie, if the thing is actually touching you, you have died. Yeah. But she manages to kill one, although it does cost her her ability to walk from the acid blood mm-hmm. and then of course ultimately her life but the way she and gorman go out i just i think it's a really nice moment for gorman because you know he from the point where he wakes up he redeems himself a little bit he's more amenable to everyone else's ideas he's quieter and less cocky he fights bravely in the last battle and then in this last moment too when it's clear him and vasquez are going to be killed he pulls out that grenade and they have that really great moment of holding the grenade and all grabbing each other's hands i actually get a little misty every time i see this moment because i mean these are two characters who didn't like each other right 
And yet at the same time, they're going out in this final, you know, suicidal blaze together, holding each other's hands like that. Yeah. And I just also, I don't know, every time I watch this movie, and I've mentioned this with other films, I kind of secretly wish that this time it'll be different. Yeah, that's the thing about rewatching movies, and it never is. I know. I just like, but every time I keep hoping, I'm like, maybe this is the time where Vasquez makes it. Like, maybe <laughs> this time. And then, nope. Still, it's a it's a great death. Yeah. But unfortunately, it also fucks things up for the rest because it sends Newt tumbling down that chute. Right. And it gives us a pretty incredible and famous shot, too, where it's the alien rising up out of the water behind her. Yeah. Awesome shot. I think it might be my favorite shot from the Alien franchise. The alien itself just looks so good. The coming. alien does look very good. Yeah, coming up out of the water, and it's just, it's right behind, and the way it's behind her, it's so terrifying. Anyway, Newt's been taken, and Ripley is going to try and save her. And this is where we finally get action hero Ripley. Mm-hmm. Fully formed, you know, she makes her super gun out of the pulse rifle and the uh, flamethrower. Yeah. And, um, you know, she throws on, like, the was it the bandolier or whatever too and she comes out with all the smoke and the wind blowing her hair and it's just uh sigourney weaver referred to her character late in the film as rambolina <laughs> and it's you know that's who she is at the end like this is the culmination of her arc right yeah. this is her this is badass action hero ripley and it's so good and she goes in she rescues newt and by the way so newt is cocooned in in front of an egg and that's the way so many of these colonists and presumably a lot of the Marines have perished. Right. Not how I want to go. No, not at all. Could you imagine like being trapped in front of one of those eggs and being helpless to prevent it from affixing itself to you? Yeah. And all that slimy goop is just gross. I know. Fucking hell. Ugh. Die without dignity. Ugh. Ugh. So anyway, Ripley gets Newt and she finally finds out what's laying those eggs. Mm-hmm the queen what do you think of the queen that was actually a fantastic scene and i know i've i've you know been ribbing this movie a little bit here and there but that scene was great that whole reveal when you see all the eggs all of that was just fantastically done um looked really cool yeah um yeah yeah um and this is another moment too where i wonder about their intelligence because during this face-off you have kind of a hostage situation where Ripley aims her gun at the eggs and the queen like calls off her goons. Yeah. So they clearly have some sort of rudimentary language even and right. the capacity to understand an implied threat. Yes. It's interesting. Um and now that you're bringing it up I'm 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 looking at it a little closer. <laughs> And I mean, does that make any sense at all? Would they know what a gun is? I mean, they've encountered human beings before, so I guess maybe they they would. I, I think, you know, I, I think I could in my description be reading too much intelligence into it. It could be that it's just barely smart enough to be like dangerous thing near the eggs. And it's just making like a very simple back off noise because it's like concerned about the eggs, uh -huh, you know, like uh -huh. it could be no more complicated than that. But it makes you wonder, especially because later it uses an elevator. 
That's true. We get it. So the, the true villain of the end of this movie is Elevators. Elevators, always. So first we get going down and we get the return of that bitch mother from the first movie. Yeah. Reading off the time that's left oh. again. And um, Ripley with Hicks, the elevator doors just will not close. No. And then when Ripley's trying to escape, that elevator will just not come. And she keeps hitting the button the way I always do when I need to catch an elevator. And it's right. just, God, it just won't come. And then, of course, the elevator comes for the alien queen. What the fuck? It, yeah, that was a little bit contrived to me. I mean... Well, it's probably uh, Ripley's, like, frantic hitting the button that called the second one down. Oh, okay. That's right. that's just a guess. Uh, it's okay. It could be a retcon that I'm I mean, why don't the elevators it. work, though? Like, they're slow. They're just slow. It's the future. They can't. They haven't figured out elevators. And the place is blowing up. Like they're working at all is pretty impressive. Well, shouldn't they work or not work? I don't know. Uh, I don't. Know. <laughs> anyway, one other thing that I do like in this scene is just um, Ripley's almost out the door, and one of the eggs opens. Yeah. And she just gives this little look. She just like she tilts her head and gives one of these like for fuck's sake looks, right. and then just opens up. And destroys all that shit. Torches it all to the ground. That must have been very therapeutic for her. I, I feel bet. like she must have exercised a lot of demons in that moment, blowing away like dozens upon dozens of eggs and fully grown yeah. aliens. Yeah, it must have felt good. Nonetheless, she gets back to the ship, and lo and behold, the alien is followed. Mm-hmm. So first we get uh, Bishop finally showing for once and for all that he is a good guy. He rescues everyone, and Ripley comes to terms with the fact that, you know what? You robots are okay. Mm -hmm. And then Bishop, something comes out of his chest. Did you, in that moment, think for a second that he had been impregnated? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone does. But would that work with a robot? How could it, right? Well, that's what I was thinking during it. I was like, how, okay, how did... Yeah, because he's a robot, and then it made sense. So, yeah. I, I mean, I thought that was a pretty good move. That tail is incredible, too. When it pe- finally pierces through, that is, it is a fucking sword coming mm-hmm. through his chest. It's amazing. And just the, the queen coming out from that underneath that ship, she's so scary. But Ripley manages to do her best uh, Ian Malcolm and distract the thing long enough for the kid to get to safety, and then she runs away. The alien, again showing some intelligence, starts pulling up the floor, trying to get to Newt. Mm-hmm. But Ripley comes back, and she lays on us one of the most badass lines in the history of movies. Of course, I mean, get away from her, you bitch. You bitch. And with the power loader, she just comes stomping out. Did yeah. you recognize this moment? Did I recognize the moment specifically? Yeah, that Ripley, like, the door opens. She comes walking out with the power loader, which was very uh, cleverly foreshadowed earlier in the movie. Yeah. And she says, get away from her, you bitch. It's a very famous little piece of action scene. Yeah, but is that, again, you know, it it just kind of seems like... It it just kind of seems like you know action movie canon. I don't know. It, it, is every subsequent instance of that type of thing 
derived from aliens? No, I don't think so. I just, I, I think that that particular moment in especially action cinema history yeah. goes down as one of the best. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. And uh, what do you think of the fight? Great. Yeah. Fun. Not yeah. too dated. Because, I mean, you know, looking at it now from 2018, it's a little slow, it's a little clunky, but I yeah. do think, nonetheless, it holds up. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So, all right, so, as we said, Ripley and the Mechaloder and the Alien Queen fight. And Ripley decides, you know what? It worked before, maybe it'll work again. Let's try blowing this thing out the airlock. Right. So, she does that. And I just want to say, uh, as cool as the moment is, Ripley then climbs that ladder out of the out of the airlock. Yeah, you could not do that. Listen, that that was bullshit. I'm just going to call bullshit on that whole thing. I'm going to call bullshit on Ripley having a stronger grip than the super strong queen alien. <laughs> well, the alien didn't lose her grip. Ripley's shoe came off. All right. Fine, fair, but although still. that's kind of weird too, because those shoes—did you get a good look at those shoes? No, they are like really tight and velcroed up the wazoo. She has these super shoe, super. She has these future shoes mm. that just look like they would never come off. I, you know, I think in the 1980s, people thought that Velcro was going to be the shoe of the future, and it just never got there. Yeah, and also uh, poofiness, like that yeah. kind of almost like a uh, a down coat. Right, style right. nature to things yeah it made the sh makes her boots look a little squishy um but the point is it wasn't exactly a slip-on yeah but whatever it's a nitpick it's not a big deal and so she, ripley finally saves the day and then newt finishes both their arcs and calls her mommy mm -hmm. i got a little teary it's a beautiful moment and that's basically the end of the movie that's it yeah it's interesting how, so Alien 1 is a horror movie, mm -hmm. and Ripley is such an archetype for the final girl. Mm -hmm. Alien 2 is an action movie, and Ripley is such an archetype for the badass female action hero. Mm -hmm. Sigourney Weaver basically owns two movie genres, mm. horror and action, like both of those films and her roles in them are among the best ever and most iconic ever. And that's not even counting sci-fi as a genre. And she's like the archetype for them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty impressive. Good for you, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, good for, good for you, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. So anyway, how did this movie do? This movie, do you want to guess the budget? Oh, boy. Yeah, don't worry about it. All right. This movie had a budget of about $18 million. All right. Do you want to guess how much it made? All right. Now, I'm trying to remember Alien. I think I was somewhat close on. I'm going to say Aliens made more than Alien. Um, probably ticket prices were higher in 86 than they were in 79. I'm going to say this movie made $82 million. You are too low, my friend. Mm. This movie made... And as with Alien, there's a gigantic discrepancy here between the bottom and top estimates, but it made between 131 and 180 million dollars. Wow. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 1986, and it is one of the, still today, one of the highest grossing R-rated movies of all time. Mm. Yeah. 
It was nominated for seven Oscars, and it won two. So it was nominated for Best Score, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Art Direction. It won Best Sound Effects Editing and Best Visual Effects, which I think is well-deserved. Mm. And then the uh, one I haven't mentioned is that um, Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Best Actress, but she did not win. And I just want to pay particular attention to that because as I've been harping on with her performance being great, it was so great that she got an Oscar nomination for being in a science fiction movie, a science fiction action movie. Which is incredibly impressive. I have to wonder if part of that was that era maybe did not have as many female protagonists as we do even today, which is much fewer than we have male protagonists. I mean, that certainly could be part of it. I mean, action, but also especially sci-fi is just so ghettoized by the Academy. Oh, absolutely. You know, like it doesn't get any respect. So I think even given that... um, there might have been fewer meaty female roles at the time to get recognized. It's still pretty impressive that she got the nomination. Mm-hmm. This movie, Will, has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. There you go. Which I think makes it the best-reviewed movie we have ever covered on this podcast. Wow, that's that's yeah. incredible. So higher than Alien. Yeah, huh. higher than Jaws, higher huh. than Indiana Jones. Yeah, it has a 94% audience score as well. Here's a few reviews. So from back then when the movie came out, here's some positive ones. Roger Ebert, he gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars. Called it painfully and unremittingly intense and a superb example of filmmaking craft. He said, when I walked out of the theater, there were knots in my stomach from the film's roller coaster ride of violence. David Kerr of the Chicago Reader called the film the one sequel that surpasses the original. Hmm. We're going to talk a little bit about this in relation to the other one, but I do want to point out that I I do believe Godfather 2 had come out by this point. Godfather 2 had come out by this point. Do you consider it better than one? Godfather 2? Yeah. No. Okay. I don't either. I prefer Godfather 1, but uh, some people do consider Godfather 2 better. Interesting. Yeah. Now, on the more negative side, maybe you'll like this review a little better, Will. Uh, Siskel didn't like this movie that much. He said, one extremely violent, protracted attack on the senses, and that towards the end, the film resorts to placing a young girl in jeopardy in a pathetic attempt to pander to who knows what audience. Some people have praised the technical excellence of Aliens. Well, the Eiffel Tower is technically impressive, but I wouldn't want to watch it fall apart on people for two hours. (laughs) Damn! You know I miss those guys. I miss them so much. I miss their their back and forth too, because yeah. like the tension between the two of them was so valuable. Yeah. If you're looking for some something similar in terms of that dynamic, I would recommend um, my two favorite film critics are both formerly of the Dissolve and the AV Club, uh, Tasha Robinson mm-hmm. and Scott Tobias. Mm-hmm. They're both great individually. But they're both on a podcast now called The Next Picture Show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they pair a new release with an older film with which they can sort of discuss shared themes or filmmaking techniques, anything that would cause a good pairing. And Tasha and Scott disagree a lot, and I love them both. So I find that the film analysis that comes out of their arguing mm-hmm. is the like Scott versus 
Tasha is the best film critic <laughs> alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're more than the sum of their parts when they get going. It's really it's a it's a valuable uh, duo, especially when they disagree. But um, uh, to throw out one more more uh, up to date or modern review, James Berardinelli from Real Views gave it a positive review in 2000, saying, When it comes to the logical marriage of action, adventure, and science fiction, few films are as effective or accomplished as Aliens. So, the legacy of this movie. I first became aware of this film because in 1992, a toy line came out related to this, made by Kenner. Do you remember the Kenner Aliens toys, Will? No. We're close to the same age, so. Okay. So it's all the characters from this film. It's Ripley, it's Hicks, it's Vasquez and Bishop, all of them. The toys were related to a failed cartoon pilot. They were going to make a cartoon for kids about aliens featuring all these characters. How they were still alive, I don't know. (laughs) But they all had action figures, and they had all these different alien action figures too. And... It just it it suggested a lot of things about alien physiology that had yet to become canon. Okay. Too. Yeah. So I don't know. I just I remember these Kenner toys so well, and it's how I like I hadn't seen Aliens, so I knew Hicks and Vasquez and Bishop all from these toys before I ever saw the movie. And then you watched them all die. Yeah, I had my favorites too. I was like, I love Bishop. And then I was like, what happens to Bishop in the movie? And my friend was like, he gets torn apart. (laughs) And I mean, ironically enough, I guess that 1992 means that these toys were basically a tie-in to Alien 3. Right. Which again, most of these characters are not alive. Right. Another thing that this film inspired legacy-wise is StarCraft. So StarCraft... How familiar are you with this game? Not at all. It's a real-time strategy game, and the idea is that there are three different races. You pick which one you want, and each one has a different style. They're different but balanced, right? You have the high-tech Protoss. Mm -hmm. You have the biological and kind of mass-produced Zerg, and then you have the Terrans. All of these characters are inspired, well, two-thirds of this is inspired by this movie. So, the Zerg are clearly the aliens. The humans are clearly the marines from this movie. You even have, like, the dropship is basically the exact same character. Mm-hmm. And then the Protoss, the high-tech, super, like, awesome fighters, those are clearly predators. So, this game is basically the predator versus alien military strategy game. <laughs> Where you could choose which race you want to be. And then, of course, we have all the sequels and the spinoffs. Yeah. So many. And not all of them. In fact, basically none of them that good. I'll go to bat for Alien vs. Predator Requiem. I kind of like that one. Okay. And there are things... I don't know. So, I'm assuming that uh, this is going to be it for us doing the Alien franchise. You're obviously welcome to come back, but I'm guessing you don't want to do it for Alien 3. You know, I think that if we were to do maybe a roundup once I've familiarized myself with sort of the rest of the canon, that might be interesting. But yeah, I don't know if Alien 3 in and of itself reaches the level of blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise socially relevant. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, I'm sure you also wanted to start doing different movies. Yeah. Um, so I'll just I'll just say that Alien 3 
is an interesting film and there's a lot about it that I think is worth defending, but it's not that good. And then that becomes increasingly the case as you go on. <laughs> so there you go. And then lastly, AFI in a 2003 roundup of the greatest action heroes and villains of all time listed Ellen Ripley as number eight on the list of greatest movie heroes of all time. Nice. I agree. So that brings us kind of to the end here. Will, what did you think of Aliens? We did, well, of course, we did Alien first, and Alien, um, very quickly into my viewing of Alien, I realized that this was a classic movie for a lot of great reasons. Um, it was a huge hole in my, you know, cinematic understanding and uh, the movies that I had seen. Aliens, to me, wasn't quite that level. I thought it was a very good action film. I thought it had a lot of good stuff going for it. I completely enjoyed watching it, but I didn't I didn't end thinking that was a great movie. Wow. I mean, I disagree with you, but given how you've expressed your reaction to the film, uh, I can see what you're getting at. And so I guess it goes without saying that you are one of the people who considers Alien better than Aliens. I consider Alien better than Aliens. Because that's an ongoing debate. Which, okay. which of the two, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's one that rages on to this day, which of the two Alien movies is superior. Excellent. Well, now that I have no longer locked myself out of reading or looking at anything on the internet about the franchise, I look forward to... To voicing my opinion on yeah. um, whatever Reddit or <laughs> whatever whatever thread you get whatever on thread I get yeah, on jump right in you're gonna get flamed um, great yeah all right so Will last question then yep. you've expressed your feelings but I want to know do you consider this film better late or never uh, better late okay because it felt a little borderline there no well I mean. I I was holding, you know, I, I have I put Alien very high on the on the mantle, and it did not come close to my appreciation of Alien. But of course, it's a good movie. I'm glad I saw it. Right on. Yeah, right on. you are glad you saw it because this movie fucking rules. <laughs> okay, well that's our show. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with us, please email us at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail dot com or hit us up on Twitter at better late underscore pod will it was great having you thank you for having me great to be here again come back we'll do a different movie next time all right maybe predator perhaps perhaps although i've seen that oh all right alien versus predator then <laughs> and uh i guess on the way out all i have to say is that it's you know it's been a fun ride and we did a good job but it's it's game over man game over man game over well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. You finished. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? Maybe we could build a fire, sing a couple of songs, huh? Why don't we try that? We better get back, because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly.